Uh, Genesis, the key word is what? Beginnings. That's exactly right. Beginnings. Exodus, the key word is escape. Leviticus. Ha! It's not on there. What is it, though? Nope. What? Holiness. Leviticus is holiness. That's right. That's bonus points. Two extra points for you. All right. Uh, Numbers. Wanderings. Deuteronomy. Not up there. Bonus points. Two points. Review. Well done. Whoever said that. Review. They're reviewing for the uh, new generation. Joshua. Keyword is success. Judges. Failure. First Samuel. Monarchy, 2 Samuel, David. All right, we got, you know, I mean, it feels like a little rumblings over here. They got it. Over here, you're a little quiet. I don't know if it's because I'm not standing over there, so maybe I'll come over here and I can hear you better. All right. Uh, What were the names of the two spies who demonstrated faith after spying out the promised land? Oh, strong now, strong. You come over here and they speak up. Okay, I like it. All right, Joshua and Caleb. Who successfully led the Israelites into the promised land? Joshua. He is going to uh, meet a particular woman in Jericho whose name is Rahab. Well done. All right, the book of Judges is broken up into seven cycles. This is bonus points. This is hard. Name the five parts to each cycle. Hard. Sin. Well done. Slavery. Supplication, that's just an alliteration for prayer. You've got to find an S. Supplication, salvation, silence. Well done. That's the whole book of Judges, and you see seven cycles like that. It's a depressing book, okay? Um, and then, uh, who was the first king over Israel? Saul, and who was the second king? David. Well done. All right, well done. All right, see if this is going to work. Come on. Jeff, you're killing me over there. All right. All right, you remember that there are how many primary historical books? 17 historical books. How many primary? 11. And those are the ones that are highlighted right there. And they're primary because they move the chronology along. And that's where I'm spending most of my time during our time together, is I'm just helping you understand what is the narrative, the story. Okay, the other books supplement, they review, they um, summarize the story that is told in the 11 primary historical books. Okay, everybody clear on that? You understand? Um, The poetical books, there's five of those. They fit within the historical context of those 11 primary books. And then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Those are people who live and spoke, ministered to, Uh, the nation of Israel before the exile, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, during the exile, and then after the exile. So they're broken up in in, uh, order in your Bible based in major prophets and minor prophets, and that's based on their length. But then um, they're even further categorized by when they wrote. So you have the the prophets pre-exilic, before the exile, You have those in white. You have the exilic prophets. Notice there's only two, Ezekiel and Daniel, who wrote during the exile. This is where you get Daniel in the lion's den. Where was he? He was in Babylon. Okay? 
So, um, and then you have the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after the people return home. These are the prophets who spoke and ministered during that time. All right? Ten periods of the Old Testament story. Everybody knows this. Everybody's got to stand up. Everybody's got to wake up. You look tired. Come on. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. All right, you ready? Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. You ready to go a little faster? Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, Silence. See if you can beat me. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, drunk. Just kidding. All right, everybody sit down. All right, so those, if you're following the story, okay, if you're following the story of the 11 books, okay, they tell one continuous story, and if you were to make up a, if you were to um, put that story into chapters, those would be the 10 chapters or periods. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wanderings, conquest. What book am I in right now? Conquest. Joshua, that's right. Then judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. Okay, so I just want to review for you. Genesis, the key word is beginnings. Short outline. Four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. People, those are the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Okay? Exodus, key word is escape. The short outline is redemption. God redeems his people from slavery and then reveals to them the law. Remember the law is broken up into three parts. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. The law is not bad. The law is good. The law reveals to us our need for a Savior. It teaches us about the character of God and how we can have, how, how the Old Testament um, believers and faithful could relate to God. Okay? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? So, um, the book of Numbers, the key word is wanderings. You have the old generation, which is the Exodus generation. The tragic transition, they go to Kadesh Barnea, they send in the spies. There's 12 spies. Remember, Joshua and Caleb are two of the, of the 12 who say, hey, we can go in. But everybody else rebels. They don't believe God. They don't trust him. So now they're going to wander in the wilderness. One year for every day, they spied out the promised land. And then you have the new generation. Okay? Um. Book of uh, Joshua, the key word is success. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They conquer the land, and then they settle within the land. All right. Judges, key word is failure. You see um, there's a summary, uh, basically uh, two chapters of summary describing the decline before the judges. Then you have the seven cycles which is deliverance through the judges, chapters 3 through 16. And then 17 through 21 is a really dark period that's described there where 
uh, there was no king at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is chaos. They are a people who are to be set apart. They're to be a kingdom of priests, not to do what's right in their own eyes, but to honor and follow the Lord. Could you imagine if everybody just does what was right in their own eyes? So it's giving you a picture that the people who are set apart to be a kingdom of, of priests so they could be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, okay? Now they're going their own way. So this is a, a, a bleak time. Then you have 1 Samuel, um, and the key word here is monarchy. Samuel is a judge and one of the prophets. He anoints Saul, who's Israel's first king. He was not God's choice of a king. He was the people's choice for a king. And then Saul, though, he is an insecure leader. His heart is not fully given to the Lord. He's given to rage and jealousy because um, God is raising up and exalting David. Then we went into 2 Samuel. The key word is David, and you have David's triumphs. Remember here the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, house, kingdom, and throne. You have the da- David's transgressions with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. And then David's troubles. There's now, after that, there is unrest and there's civil war and revolt within his home. And so he experiences both personal and political trouble. So that is where we have been. We've covered a lot of ground. Tonight, we're going to pick up with 1 Kings. And the key word for 1 Kings is division. Division. Okay, so now I want you to remember. So in, back in 1 Samuel, key word monarchy, the people asked for a king. God says, hey, I want to be your king. They say, no, 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 we want a king like all the other nations. That's another red flag. We want a king like all the other nations. And God says to Samuel, fine, they can have a king. And Samuel is disturbed by how, because what the nation wants is a king like all the other nations. They are not being distinct. They're not being set apart. And God says, hey, they have not rejected you, Samuel, as, as their leader. They've rejected me as their king. But give them what they want. So they choose Saul. Saul becomes king over the nation of Israel. Okay? Then after Saul comes David. After David comes Solomon. Now, Solomon is the wisest man to ever live, okay? Because when God comes to David, let me back up. God comes to David, and David says, hey, I want to build a house for you. And God says, you can't build a house for me because you're a man of bloodshed. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you a throne, okay? And this is what's known as the Davidic Covenant. House, kingdom, and throne. House, he'll have many descendants, just like the Abrahamic covenant. A kingdom, he'll have a political body of which to rule. And the throne, this is key. Listen carefully. The throne means that David's lineage will always have the right to rule. It does not mean that it will be an unbroken succession of David's descendants on the throne. Clearly, that's not the case even today. Okay? But it means that God is never going to remove that right to rule. It's always going to come. We know the messianic line is going to come through David. Okay? So now David, when he dies, Solomon prays 
And um, wait, is distracting. Solomon prays for wisdom and discernment. God is going to give him whatever he wants. He's David's son. And what he asks for is wisdom and discernment. He doesn't ask for glory. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for power. I mean, could you imagine if God comes to you and goes, hey, you pray, okay? And when you pray, I'm going to answer that prayer. And Solomon, in his humility, because he learned from his daddy, right, who was a man after his own heart, he started well. He said, I need wisdom in order to lead your people. Grant me wisdom. And so the Lord was honored by his prayer. And he said, not only will I give you wisdom, you will be the wisest person to ever live. Other rulers from other nations are even going to come to seek your counsel and seek your advice. And because you didn't ask for selfish motive, for riches and for fame, I'm actually going to give you all of those things. And so Solomon was blessed with riches um, and great wisdom, okay? Then Solomon, what he does is that he builds the temple that his father David intended to build. It is now a the tabernacle. Remember when we studied in the book of Exodus, they had a tabernacle that led the people, right? Pillar of fire by day, pillar of, fire by, uh, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, okay? And God tabernacled in the tent, in the, in the camp. Well, now Solomon's saying, hey, I want to build you a house. I'm going to build you a place where you can dwell amongst your people permanently, okay? And so that's what God does through Solomon. He gives him great wisdom, gives him great um, wealth, and he builds a, uh, a temple. When Solomon, though, in his old age, because he had so much wealth and because he had accumulated so many wives and because he had accumulated so many horses, his heart turned away from the Lord. Because back in the law, in, the, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, what God said is there will be a day where you will ask for a king. And this king cannot accumulate wealth, women, or horses. And you go, horses? Why can't you have horses? Think about this. You can't accumulate wealth because then you're going to depend upon your wealth and not depend upon me. If you accumulate wives in that time, okay, people would marry, not for all the same reasons we get married, but political alliances, okay, in treaties, peace treaties, okay? So what he's doing is he's marrying foreign wives who believe in different gods. Now he's compromising his faith. His heart is not purely devoted to the Lord, and he's accumulating horses, which is military might, okay? So now he has chariots. He has wives. He has wealth, and he's not the man who came to God in the beginning saying, hey, just let me lead with wisdom, so he's, he's a classic study in a guy who starts strong but finishes poorly. So when he dies, the kingdom splits into two. Okay? Because now there's a challenge as to who's going to rule. And the northern, this nation of Israel, one nation, okay, is called Israel. Follow me. For all those who are kind of a little sleepy, you're going to get lost if you don't pay attention to one part. So the whole nation is Israel. When he dies, the nation splits in two, 
and the northern part of the nation retains the name Israel. The southern part of the nation takes on the name Judah, which is the largest of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Judah becomes the name of the southern kingdom. Okay? So what happens is there's, there is rivalry and disagreement over who's going to lead. And um, what ends up happening is you have Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And um, Rehoboam, when he is Solomon's son, when he comes to power, he gathers his, he gathers his father's advisors and his, and his kind of old high school buddies. And he goes, hey, what would you do? And the high school buddies say, hey, man, you need to come on strong because you're young and you need to show the people that you mean business. And so they'll respect you and so they'll fear you. And so what he does is, is he raises taxes and he, and he oppresses the people. And the, his father's advisors said, hey, man, it, it has been uh, it, the best thing you could do is to relax a little bit. Okay, don't come on strong and win the respect of the people. But he listens to his high school cronies, okay, the guys he was in high school with, and he doesn't listen to his old man's advisors, and that's what splits the kingdom in two. Okay, so um, the purpose of First Kings is to record the history of Israel from Solomon to the divided kingdom, and to demonstrate the folly of rebelling against the Lord. Okay, Solomon records. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, okay? So when you read those books, they are written by the wisest man to ever live, and they're worth reading. Song of Solomon is in his youthful days, in his, uh, uh, when he's in love, and it's, it's a love book, okay? It's a love story. Ecclesiastes, I mean, Proverbs is written from the wisest man who's ever lived to his son because he wants him to walk in wisdom. He wants him to fear the Lord. He wants him to grow in maturity. And then Ecclesiastes, he's at the end of his life, and he's looking back and he's going, what is the point of life? I have had everything. I have had money. I've had success. I've had wealth beyond measure. I've had houses. I've had pleasure. I've had everything. I have knowledge, and yet my heart is still empty. And then he concludes, and he's saying, hey, the summation, the conclusion, all that I've learned is you better fear God, that a life apart from God, okay, is meaningless. And that's his conclusion. So um, there's the emphasis through 1 Kings is wisdom versus folly. There's an emphasis on the temple and proper worship and who is the king. You'll see some of the unique features, Solomon's wealth and wisdom, which I explained. I talked about the kingdom divides. It's also a book where you've probably heard about Elijah, who's one of the prophets of God. If you've heard about his contest with uh, the prophets of Baal, this happens in 1 Kings. What happens is, is during this time, there is a, uh, a divided country, not just in uh, geography, 
but the people's hearts are divided. Okay, and there's a, it's a polytheistic um, war, uh, nation, and there is a belief in a god named Baal. You've got to understand, this is an agrarian society. And so the people are motivated by two things, kids and crops. Okay? Because you've got to eat. So you need kids so they can work the ground and grow the crops so you can eat and take care of yourself. All right? So what happened is, is they had these pagan nature gods that they believed that they could worship and manipulate. And if they were to do that, then the gods would respond and bring the rain and bring the crops and allow them to have kids. Okay, and this god was Baal. And Baal is a, obviously is not the one true god. And so you have Elijah, the prophet of the one true god, gathers with all the prophets of Baal, and he says, hey, let's have a contest, and let's just see whose god is real. So this is a great confrontation. How many of y'all are familiar with this story that I'm telling right now? Okay, a few of you. It's a great confrontation where Elijah, in great faith, um, in great courage, confronts the prophets of Baal, and they say, hey, we're going to make a sacrifice. And whichever God responds with fire, that is the God who is the one true God. And so he goes, I'll let you go first. And so the prophets of Baal spend hours all day long praising their God, crying out, praying to their God, asking for him to rain down fire, begin to cut themselves, believing that's somehow going to manipulate their God. Okay, And then at this point, Elijah has what you see kind of the first smack talking in the Old Testament, Okay, where he says, hey, where's your God? Maybe he's asleep. Okay. You can read this in the Bible. He says, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Maybe, maybe he's distracted. Okay? He's not showing up. Your God's not real. The longer it goes without Baal showing up to rain down fire, the more confident Elijah grows. Okay? They give up. Then Elijah says, I tell you what, dig a moat around my sacrifice and pour water in it. Dump water all over this thing. Make sure there's water, you know, several feet high around this sacrifice. And then I'm going to call on my God and watch what happens. And sure enough, Elijah, and God rains down fire. And it's at that point the people are going, okay, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the one true God. So you see the prophets confronting the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Yahweh confronting the prophets of Baal. And that's going to be thematic. During this time, the written prophets that I told you about, the pre-exilic prophets, what they're saying is, hey, listen, if you guys don't turn from your idolatry, if you don't begin to follow the Lord, what's going to happen is God's going to remove his hand of blessing, and there's going to be others who are going to come and oppress us. Okay? So they're warning the people of Israel, listen. And obey, Re- repent, return to the law. Um, there's the emphasis, that is the when I say the key words did what was evil in high places. Those high places um, are references to worship of Baal. The key verses name just a couple. 
You see in 1 Kings chapter 4, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. But look, that's chapter 4. Look what happens in chapter 8. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll get there in the next chapter. Uh, so this is the establishment of the temple. So that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so chapter 4, he's given wisdom. 8, he builds the temple, and the, and the glory of God fills the temple. And then 11, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Okay? So, first kings is division. The kingdom divides. Second kings, the key word is exile. Now, when you read these two books together, um, I've got to tell you, they're a little complicated because they go back and forth between What's happening in the north? What's happening in the south? What's happening in the north? What's happening in the south? So I would encourage you, I've done it in my Bible, I've highlighted all the kings in the north, one color, and all the kings in the south, another color. Otherwise, when you're reading through it, you're like, I don't know who's in the north, who's in the south, or what's happening. Okay. But the bottom line is, when you read through this, all the kings in the north, let's see if I can get there. Okay, all the kings in the north, not one is righteous. Not one. Okay, they're 19 and they're 0 for 19. They all follow after Jeroboam in the ways of Jeroboam. This is a great, fascinating study in legacy. Legacy. How one man can turn a nation on its head and successive generations choose to follow. Because of his wickedness and his influence, he torpedoes his nation. Okay? So I want to just point out this one thing right here. When you're reading through the prophets, sometimes the nation of Israel is referred to as Ephraim after one of the tribes. Okay? So that, when you read Isaiah and you're like, Ephraim, who's Ephraim? That is Israel. There are 19 kings, none are righteous, it consists of 10 tribes. Its capital was Samaria, not the region of Samaria that you hear Jesus walking through, okay, talking about the Samaritans, the city of Samaria. It's captured by the Assyrians, which we'll go over here in a little bit. And they, at this point, um, there's, uh, in Second Kings, there's no return from captivity, okay, in the last 209 years. The southern kingdom, referred to as Judah, consists of... Uh, 20 kings and eight are righteous. Okay. Hezekiah, Josiah consists of two tribes. The capital was Jerusalem. It's going to be captured by the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar. And I'll talk to you about the three returns here in just a second. Okay. Let me go back. Okay. So you see, in 2 Kings, this, in 1 Kings, rather, the kingdom splits. In 2 Kings, the nation of Israel is going to fall because it's going to be overthrown by 
Assyria, okay? The Assyrians. These are the same people that Jonah did not want to go preach to because they were a wicked, brutal people. They tortured their, those who they took captive. They literally filleted them, okay, and then bragged about it. They drew pictures and talked about how they were able to take their captors um, by uh, hooks like fish and just put it right in their mouth, okay? And they would systematically torture their captors. They are wicked, brutal people, and they overthrew the northern kingdom of Israel. So when God comes to Jonah and says, hey, go and tell them about my goodness, he's like, no. I want you to rain down judgment on those wicked people. So he gets in a boat and sails clear in the clear opposite direction of Tarshish. Okay? Jonah's not about a big fish. Jonah is about God's love for the nations. All right? And so... Eventually, what happens is, as you know, there's a storm. Jonah's thrown out. He's going to die, and the fish is an instrument of salvation. You know that. The fish is an instrument of salvation for Jonah. Delivers him where God intended for him to go all along. He goes to Assyria. He preaches, and what happens? The people repent. But instead of Jonah rejoicing in the goodness and grace of God, he pouts. He becomes bitter and angry, all right? So um, Jonah is about God's love for the nations. What we read in Nahum later on, though, is that those same people who repent, they too eventually harden their hearts, and God brings an overwhelming flood and drowns the Assyrians, all right? That's bonus points. Um. The book ends with the nation of Judah being overthrown by the Babylonians, which is led by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So the purpose is to record the pivotal events in the kings of Israel and Judah and to show what led to their eventual downfall. The themes, the emphasis on the kings, idolatry, judgment, prophecy, the warnings of the prophets, and eventually the exile, just the taking away of the people into a foreign land. Unique features, you see this transition from Elijah to Elisha's ministry. You see um, the righteous kings in the south, Hezekiah and Josiah, namely. The wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, I encourage you to read their story in the north. And then eventually the fall of Israel and Judah. To read to you some of the key verses you'll find here. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the custom of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So you see what's happened? God used Israel to drive out a pagan people, just as he said he would do when he promised the land to Abraham. But then those people, the Israelites, once they entered into the land, they were not a people set apart. They were not a people who followed the law. They were a people who rejected God, and they became no different than the original inhabitants of the land. And God goes, I'm no longer going to bless a people who are stubborn and refuse to follow me. 
Catch that? So God removes his hand of protection and blessing. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. Again, that emphasis on high places, that is the worship of Baal. They set up for themselves pillars in Asherim on every high hill and and under every great green tree. The Asherim, that is the female fertility god. So you have God's people worshiping Baal, the male fertility god, and the Asherim, the female fertility god, to manipulate them so that they will bring rain upon the earth. That's how far away God's people have gone from following him. Okay? And they, were, and they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. They're no different from the nations. They're not a kingdom of priests whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. I've been to Israel. I walked into the city of Dan. You can walk there now, even see where they made sacrifices to this day. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. This is where the prophets fit. The Lord sends warnings. He sends people to say, hey, I love you. You've wandered away from me. Hey, where have you gone? He uses incredible illustrative language. You know the story of Hosea, right? You've heard the story of Hosea? Hosea is instructed to marry who? Anybody know? Gomer. And who was Gomer but an unfaithful prostitute? And she continued to cheat on her husband. And God said, you see this? This is a picture of a faithful man who's wedded to an unfaithful woman. And that is the nature of my relationship with Israel. In Hosea, you are going to be a an example, and a model, so that all the nation, when they look at you and they go, why are you still faithfully covenanted to her? You're going to say, because that is the nature of God's relationship with us. And we are like an unfaithful spouse, but God remains faithful because he loves us. Okay? So prophets come, prophet after prophet, Come and warn them this is going to happen if they don't turn. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen because they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe the Lord their God. Okay? The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. Remember the first king of the north, which he did. They did not depart from them generation after generation after generation until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke by, through his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. All right. 2 Kings twenty three twenty seven. we get to the close of the book. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah, the southern kingdom as well, out of my sight, as I've removed Israel, and I will cast off This city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name should not be there. So what God says is, hey, listen, I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. The people refuse that. God removes his hand of blessing. And the reason why the northern kingdom fell first is because how many righteous kings were in the north? Zero. How many are righteous in the south? Eight. 
And because of the eight righteous kings who pray to God and seek his heart and desire to follow him, God blesses that nation. There is no secret. Okay? God, as uh, the Old Testament says in the Chronicles, it says, hey, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. And he sees eight men and he goes, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to bless your land. All right? So that's the difference between the two kingdoms. Now, understand, when the nation of Babylon comes and overthrows Judah, Nebuchadnezzar leads the nation of of Babylon. When he comes and overthrows Judah, the, the custom of the Babylonians was to take the best and the brightest of their captors bring them back into their homeland and assimilate them into their own culture and language and religious traditions. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar thought, hey, instead of just torturing these people, instead of executing these people, I could profit off of them. If they would adopt the Babylonian ways, if they would eat like Babylonians, worship like Babylonians, get assimilated into our culture, think like Babylonians, then I can take the best and the brightest of, Ju- of Judah and benefit from their scientists, historians, teachers, doctors, and lawyers. See what I'm saying? All right? So let's just say that Mexico overthrows the United States. All right? All of you, you're gone. You're going to Mexico. Because you're educated, smart, good-looking people. And God's going to go, I mean, God, Mexico is going to say, hey, I'm going to take you, and now you're going to learn how to speak Spanish. Okay? Now you're going to eat traditional Mexican food. You might all like that, personally. All right? But you're going to eat traditional. I would. I'm like, I'm like let's go. Okay, so tra- you're going to eat traditional Mexican food. And you're going to become um, accustomed to our culture, our language, and our traditions. Daniel which you've read about, this is the story of Daniel and Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chose not to, chapter 1, Daniel 1, chose not to defile himself with the king's food. Do y'all know the story? You remember the story? Some of you, this is where it fits, okay? Daniel took a risk. He took a, he took a, a chance. He put his faith in God, and, he, goes, and he, he would continue to pray to the one true God of Israel. And he refused to follow the traditions and customs of Nebuchadnezzar. And what God did is he said, hey, I'm going to exalt you, Daniel. And even though he would not eat their food, he came out stronger. He looked better. He was smarter. And God just continued to bless him. I want to keep going. I can't. But I'm just telling you, you want to know what does it look like to swim upstream in a godless culture? Read Daniel. Because he's living in Babylon. When everybody else around him is compromising, Daniel's saying no. And those, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say no. And so they try to kill him. But let me just tell you this. You are not done until God declares you're done. It doesn't matter if they throw you in the lion's den. It doesn't matter if they throw you in the fire. You are immortal until God says you're done. And so they're throwing in the fire, they're throwing the lion's den, and God goes, nope. Nope. And so that is the custom of the Babylonians, right? That's where Daniel fits. 
The book of Ezra, the key word is restoration. You remember when we say return? Okay. They are returning from Babylon to the promised land. Now, how in the world were they allowed to return to the promised land? Anybody know? Okay. To who? Yes, that's good. He is a cupbearer. All right. This is to who? Let me read this to you. It's going to blow your mind. You ready? You ready? Come on, you got to get excited about this. This, listen to this. This is from the book of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who comforts the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Okay, why is this significant? Because Jerusalem is in ruins. They've been destroyed by the Babylonians. But what does Isaiah say? Hey, she's going to be inhabited. She's going to be rebuilt. Who says of, do you see that name right there? Cyrus. Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Look at this. 150 years before the return before Cyrus is even born, before the world even knows his name, God uses Isaiah to tell his people, I have not forgotten you. Even though you are faithless, I am faithful. And look what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem, and I'm going to use a pagan king named Cyrus who's going to lead the Persians to overthrow the Babylonians, and he's going to let you go home. That's prophecy, gang. He called them by name. So when we read in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You said, hey, well, that says Jeremiah. Yes, Jeremiah said it too. It could easily say by the mouth of Jeremiah and Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Do you see this? This is a pagan king. This is Proverbs 21.1, which says, hey, the, the heart of the king is like channels of river in the hands of the Lord. He just turns it wherever he wishes. Okay. Any ruler, any king, any government is submissive to the one true God. Psalm 2, God is on his throne and he scoffs at the nations that reject his sovereignty. You got to get a bigger picture of God, friends. He uses a pagan king that he declared was going to come 150 years, long before he was even born, long before Persia had even overthrown Babylon. And then Cyrus, the pagan king, says... 
of the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms. He's charged me to build a house at Jerusalem. It's crazy. Whoever's among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his own place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. All right? So Ezra is about restoration. It's the return. It's the celebration back into the promised land. Okay? The people are going back to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The restoration of the remnant that returns to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra. Notice what happens. Okay? The themes here are of providence and restoration. Okay? And I want to read this to you. And the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of, the, of this house of God with joy. Ezra 6, 16. Notice what happens first. When God sends his people back, they did not rebuild the wall around Jerusalem first. What did they first rebuild? The temple. Because God was saying, you've got to reprioritize. Worship me first. I will be your protector. I will be your guard. I will be your defender. And so Zerubbabel, okay, yep, write that down. It's a biblical name, ladies, so any of you are expecting. Your boy could be Zerubbabel, okay? Zerubbabel, say that with me, Zerubbabel. Come on, that was terrible. Zerubbabel. Rebuilds the temple bowl. All right. Now you got it. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple bowl. And then following Zerubbabel is the story of Ezra, and he teaches the people the law. Okay? Because you have now you have people, the Israelites, back home. The temple's being built. Ezra now teaches them the law. I love Ezra 7:10. For Ezra had said had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and, and rules in Israel. Notice, he studied, he practiced, he taught. And that is our challenge too, to know God's word, not just know it, but to practice it. And then it's only then that can we teach it. So the next book is Nehemiah, because now God is going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's significant, the order. If it's left to me, I'm building the wall first, okay? Because I'm going to rely upon my own strength, the wall to protect me. And what God says is, no, 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 you don't need a wall. You don't need a sword. What you need is a relationship with me. What you need is faith. And so God told them, reestablish worship, build the temple, understand my law, and then they rebuild the wall. But they experienced... um, trials and challenges in rebuilding this wall. But here's what's amazing. Well, it's the purpose is to tell the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and recommitment of the return exiles under Nehemiah's leadership. The wall is completed in 52 days. 
Nehemiah 6, uh, 15 through 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day, the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that his, this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Okay? So what happened is God used Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer, actually. Nehemiah, not Ezra. I think I said Ezra. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he went home to rebuild the wall. Okay? And he used Nehemiah to accomplish what the foreign nations around them thought would be impossible. Okay? And when they saw the wall go back up and the people reestablish, okay, worship of God, they were afraid. Right? So, just a timeline here. The first wave of return led by Zerubbabel is about 538 years before Christ. And then you have the second wave led by Ezra. And then in 444, you have the third wave, Nehemiah. Now, I want to show you something for all the ladies out there. Who's ever read the book of Esther? All right. How many men have read the book of Esther? There's like four hands that went up, all the guys. Fellas, read the book of Esther. It's about a beauty queen, okay? Um, And it's got, this is, if I was to make a movie of all the books of the Bible, I would use this book. It's got it all, okay? It's a great book. It's got it all. There's plot twists, and I mean, it's a great book. But where does Esther fit? She's not a primary historical book, but this is where she fits. She fits between Ezra... 6 and Ezra 7, there's about a 60-year gap, okay? And that's where her story fits. What is she, what is that story about? It is about what happens to the Jews who choose not to return, who live in Persia, okay? So you don't have, everybody who's in Persia, I mean, some of them, their kids are in school, and they've got jobs, they're married, and they're happy. They don't want to go to Israel, Okay, they're assimilated. Their life is fine. They don't want to pick up and leave. And Esther answers the question, what happens to those who choose not to return and stay back in Persia? And you see an attempted genocide of the Jews and how God uses this little Jewish girl, raises her up because of her beauty. Okay, she is given notice by the king and... She's challenged, hey, who knows whether or not you've attained royalty for such a time as this? Where that line comes from is from Esther because she steps in her courage and her faith, steps out in faith, confronts the king, and thwarts the plan of an all-out genocide of the Jewish people. All right, that's where she fits. All right. Now, I'm going to wrap this up in just a few minutes. And then we're going to review the whole Old Testament. You ready? It, I cannot finish the story of the Old Testament without speaking of the New Covenant. The New Covenant, which the, which the prophets spoke of. Okay? Let me just read it to you. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What's that covenant? Mosaic covenant, okay? Not like the Mosaic covenant. I'm making a new covenant. Not like the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke 
Though I was their husband, there's that language again, they are a faithless wife, I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, that means sin, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah says this. Ezekiel says this. Does that sound familiar to you? How many of y'all raise your hand if that sounds familiar to you? Raise your hand if that does not sound familiar to you. Oh, come on. Nobody's playing along. How many of you, it sounds familiar, raise your hand. All right. Where do you know that to be found again? Where do we see that? This language found again. Okay. Okay. Partially. Okay. No. Wait till you see it. All right, wait for it. First Corinthians 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, what does it say? New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That is what is happening, gang, in the upper room. When Jesus takes the bread and the wine, he is saying, hey, I am fulfilling the new covenant, and I am sending you a helper And my spirit is no longer going to live in a tabernacle or a temple. I'm no longer in the flesh as a human going to reside with you. I'm giving you a helper. The Holy Spirit. Your heart is made of stone. The Old Testament tells us that our hearts will not respond to the law. Our hearts are incapable Why? Because we always choose self. We are motivated by pride and selfish ambition, even on our best days. And what God does is he takes our faithless, broken hearts and he regenerates them. He breathes new life into them. You are born again. That's the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You're born again. And what is that a fulfillment of? It is a fulfillment of the new covenant. So in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus is ascends, Okay, into the heavens. He's been resurrected. He sins in the heavens. He sends forth his spirit. And now in Acts chapter 2, for the first time, God's not working through a nation of Israel. He's working through his people, the church, Jew and Gentile alike. And you are now his temple, 1 Corinthians. 
you now are the temple of God and his spirit resides in you. All right? That's the gospel. The God sent forth his son, okay? Born of a virgin, born without sin. To pay our penalty, to pay the price, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5. The Old Testament closes. There's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. It's not that nothing happens, okay? It's just that God doesn't speak prophetically. We covered Assyria, we covered Babylon, we covered Persia. The New Old Testament closes, then you see the rise of Greece. Who leads Greece? Alexander the Great. Hellenization. Remember when you studied Western civilization? All right, and Alexander the Great and Hellenization, okay? And the Greeks and the Olympics and all of that. And then Alexander the Great um, comes to power, and then you have Israel regains independence for a short time, okay? And then... Who comes on the scene and absolutely drops the hammer? Rome. So when you read your New Testament now, who is the national power? The Romans. And so the Jews miss Jesus because they are expecting the Davidic king, based on the Davidic covenant, to come and overthrow their oppressor Rome. But Jesus, who was working miracles, captured their heart because he filled their stomachs for a time being. But then he was saying, hey, listen, gang, I have come as a lamb to deal with your sin. I will come back as a lion to overthrow Rome. But because they, he was not fulfilling their expectations of the Davidic king, they rejected him as their king and they crucified him. What kind of Messiah, what kind of son of David does not fight? And he goes, there's a bigger problem. I'm fighting a bigger problem. It's called sin. And it's not just Rome that oppresses you. It is sin and Satan. So Greece, with Greece and Hellenization comes a universal language, which is the ease of communication. The people speak Greek. Israel has this great messianic hope and expectation of a king. And with Rome and their power is a network of roads and there's efficiency of travel. And now you have the gospel explode. Because you have Rome is in charge. There is one language and you have the Messiah who has come. This is why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, just when God had ordered all the events of history. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. It's all one book, gang. It's all one book. And God has not, history is not just happenstance, a random occurrence of events. It is God's unfolding of his rescue plan on earth to bring us back into a right relationship with himself. Romans 9 through 11 answers the question, well, what about Israel? And you're going to hear the answer to that 
when Bobby comes and speaks in the next few weeks. But before then, I want us to review. All right? Everybody stand up. Come on, Jeff. Everybody stand up. Stand up, stand up. Come on, come on. We've got about 15, 14 minutes. You ready? Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. All right, well done. All right, I asked Jeff to in 14 minutes, y'all can sit down, in 14 minutes to share with y'all the story of the Old Testament. All right, so he's going to do that. Go get him. That's a tough act to follow. All right, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the end of Genesis chapter 2, he has created man and woman in his own image. They are the apex of his creation. And by the end of chapter 2, he's, he's joined them together in holy matrimony. And by chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, they've already fallen. They've eaten of the tree of, good, of the knowledge of good and evil. They've done exactly the one thing that God told them not to do. And they've fallen. However, God immediately steps in, and in verse 15, he curses the serpent, among other things. He says, I will create enmity between your offspring and her offspring, and you will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. So as soon as the fall of mankind, God promises redemption. And he says, uh, redemption, salvation is going to come through humans, through the, the line of Adam and Eve, and he's going to uh, deliver a crushing blow to evil, to you, Satan, but he's not going to make it out unscathed. You'll crush his heel in the process. So Adam and Eve go on to have kids. We know about Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. They also have Seth. And then as they repopulate the earth, God looks around and says, everybody's wicked. Everybody does wrong except one man, Noah. He goes to Noah and he says, Noah, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to wipe uh, sin. I'm going to wipe wickedness, all the wicked people off the face of the earth, but I'm going to provide provision for you and your family because you're the only righteous person that I find. And if you trust in my provision, God says, if you trust me and, and in my way of, of saving you from judgment, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So Noah builds that ark. Of course, we know by, by Genesis chapter 8, the, the flood has come and gone, wipes off everybody else, but Noah is saved. And so just in the first eight chapters of the entire book of Genesis, get this, we have the, the four elements needed for a biblical worldview. We have creation, the fall, redemption, and resolution. We see from the flood God's, uh, uh, how God is going to save us. He's going to uh, provide redemption. And we also see the end game, the resolution. How is this all going to play out? God is eventually going to eradicate evil from the face of the earth. But whoever trusts in his provision will be saved from his judgment. So Noah and his uh, family go on to repopulate the earth. We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, where people rebel and pride once again. By Genesis chapter 12, this is where God starts to put his plan of redemption spinning. This is where he starts it. And he goes to Abraham, if you remember, he says, I'm going to call you out of the land of Ur where you grew up, and I'm going to show you a land that I will promise you. And he promises him land, seed, and blessing. Remember that? He repeats that in Genesis chapter 15. Um, Genesis 15, 6, we see that uh, uh, people were always saved by grace through faith. Reference uh, Romans chapter 4, Paul explains just how uh, even Abraham, the father of the faith, was uh, saved by grace through faith. Abraham goes on to have Isaac. Uh, the, the promise is reiterated to Isaac. It says it's going to come through you. 
Isaac goes on to have Jacob and Esau. Jacob, although he's the younger, God says the promise is coming through you, through his uh, election, through his uh, sovereignty. See also Romans chapter 9. So Jacob goes on. Jacob uh, is a deceiver. Jacob is kind of a little conniver, uh, and he, he rebels against God. And this becomes symbolic. God literally wrestles with him, brings him back to faith in him, brings him back to fo- forces him to follow him, and renames him Israel. Jacob goes on, as Israel, goes on to have 12 sons, known as the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those is Judah. Judah is the uh, uh, promised lineage through which the Savior will come. Uh, towards the end of Genesis, when uh, Jacob's about to die, he's blessing his children. And to Judah, he says, the scepter shall never uh, depart from Judah. Prediction of, of where the Savior is going to come from. Joseph is one of his children. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers because although he's one of the youngest, he happens to be uh, Jacob's favorite. So while he's in Egypt, he's sold into slavery into Egypt, rises to a, a seat of prominence to the right hand of the king, uses his seat of prominence in, to save uh, his brothers and his family. So, so this is how the, the Israelites come to, to Egypt in the first place. They are out. They're in Canaan. They're in the promised land where God had, had called Abraham, their forefather. Because of a famine in the land and because of Joseph's position in Egypt, he is able to save them from the famine and give them provision within Egypt. So they, they set up camp and they live in Egypt for that provision to, to save them from the famine. Now, over the course of 400 years, now we're in Exodus. Over the course of 400 years, these 12 sons of, of Israel have grown to about 2 million people. And there's a new pharaoh in town, and he forgets the promise uh, that the uh, former pharaoh gave to Joseph. And he's also threatened by the size of these Israelites. And he says, we've we got to do something about this before they take my power. So he puts them into slavery. Not only does he put them into slavery, but he says, I'm going to kill the firstborn son, every one of them. So uh, the midwives, he orders the midwives to kill the firstborn son of all the Israelites. The midwives are faithful. They fear God. They don't fear Pharaoh. They try to save as many of these firstborn sons as they can, one of which is Moses. Moses ends up leaving because out of a... He, he murders uh, an Egyptian. He's afraid he's going to get caught. He ends up leaving, uh, works for his father-in-law, Jethro, for about 40 years as a shepherd. When all of a sudden, God comes to him, appears to him as a, a burning bush, and he says, Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. Uh, I'm hearing their cry. Uh, I'm hearing their cry from slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to use you. Moses is reluctant at first. He ends up going to Egypt with his uh, brother-in-law, Aaron, They plead with Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart heart is hardened. He says, who is this God? I don't know who you're talking about. I'm God around here, and I'm not going to do it. God sends ten plagues to break down uh, Pharaoh. As hard as his heart is, after the tenth one, God says, all right, this is going to work. I'm going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt. But I'm going to provide provision for my people, the Israelites. And anybody who puts blood on their doors... I'm going to pass over. So that night, God kills the firstborn of all Egypt, and he spares the Israelites. He provides provision for his people once again. And the Israelites flee in the middle of the night in haste. Get up in haste, flee, uh, cross the Red Sea, running from, uh, from Egypt. The uh, Red Sea collapses on Egypt. Pharaoh and his horses are killed. Uh, and then from there, uh, God leads the, leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And this is the revealing of the law. 
Uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, we get the, uh, the Ten Commandments. There's a, when Moses comes down off of the mountain, he sees Aaron, who's uh, created a, a golden calf for the people to worship. They're already turning away. Uh, but Moses goes back up the mountain. Uh, God is faithful to his promise. Leviticus, all about the Levitical law. Now, in the book of Numbers, they're marching towards the promised land, and they're on the, they're on the uh, very edge of the promised land. They send in the 12 spies. 12 spies are in there for 40 days, come back. Ten of those spies <clears throat> say, no way. It's too much. Yeah, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey, but it's too much. There's giants in the land. We can't do it. Two of those spies, Caleb and, and Joshua, right, say, no, no, no. If we're faithful, if we believe, we can do this. God is good. He is on our side. Who can be against us? Well, that enraged God because those 10 spies were able to provoke the other millions of Israelites, uh, and they were ready to overthrow Moses. Uh, They said, what are you doing? They're scared. God is angry. He says, for every day the spies were in the land, you guys are going to be wandering in the wilderness. Except for Joshua and Caleb, all of the older generation are never going to see uh, the promised land. You're all going to die in the wilderness. So they, they spend 40 years of, of wandering in the wilderness. And there's actually a, a lot of great stories in this 40 years from uh, Numbers chapter 13 to the end of the book. This is where you get the, uh, the story of the bronze serpent, which Jesus references in, in John chapter 3. This is where you get the story of uh, Balaam and the talking donkey and the four oracles he gives. It's actually a, a, a really interesting book. On the, on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of the, the 40 years, Moses is about to die. He gives them three sermons, the book of Deuteronomy, a review of everything uh, that they've learned and how they are to behave while they're in the promised land. And then Moses dies. And at the beginning of Joshua, Joshua is commissioned uh, to lead the Israelites into the promised land. So they get into the promised land. They cross the Jordan. God holds up the Jordan River just like he did the Red Sea for them. Uh, they, they take down Jericho. This is the story of where they, they march around the city for seven days, blow the trumpets, and the walls fall. Uh, Rahab's story is in Jericho. Uh, and, and they have tremendous success. They just march right through the, the promised land. Tremendous success, conquering all these foreign nations. God tells them, make sure you completely demolish all the foreign nations and their foreign gods. gods. They have a little blip with, with Achan's sin in there, but they make it, you know, they clean it up. And they're marching, and they're starting to settle by the end of Joshua. They're even, like, picking out their plots of land, and they're starting to settle. Not all the work is done yet, though. By the time Joshua dies at the end of the book, he's, he's trying to urge his people to, to keep going, finish what we have started here. Now we get to the book of Judges. Unfortunately, the Israelites failed to do what God told them. They failed to wipe out all of the foreign gods, all of the foreign nations from the promised land. And what that did was those foreign nations started to influence then Israel, started to influence them and, and impress upon them their foreign gods. And throughout the book of Judges, we get seven cycles of sin. One cycle consists of sin. The people fall into uh, uh, false idol worship and, and all kinds of sin. That leads to slavery and then supplication. They cry out to God for help. God sends a judge, salvation, and then there's silence. Things are returned back to a little bit of equilibrium, and there's, there's silence for a little bit. But there's seven of these cycles throughout the book of Judges. Two judges of note, uh, Samson. We know about Samson and Delilah. Also Gideon and his fleece. Uh, and that goes on for about 400 years. Against the backdrop of these judges, against this evil, just, just bad time in Israel's history, this is where we get the book of Ruth. 
And she's the harvest of hope, right? She is the, the picture of faithful Israel, the faithful Israelite against the, the unfaithful nation. So there's hope. There's a, there's a glimpse that this is still salvageable, right? After 400 years of judges, Samuel is born to Hannah. He ends up being the last judge because the, the people cry out for a king. We want to be a, just like all the other nations. God says, all right. And uh, uh, Saul is appointed. Saul is kind of like the people's champ right? The, the big, tall, good-looking, athletic guy. But Saul is incredibly insecure, actually. And uh, one of the commands is he's king. God says, you are to completely demolish the Amalekites. I need you to wipe them out. Nothing left. Well, Saul doesn't do that. He defeats them, but he spares the king. He spares a lot of their, their wealth and this and that. And it, it, the narrative says that at that point, when, when Saul disobeyed like that, the spirit of the Lord, or like the the blessing left Saul. God was no longer with Saul. Uh, this is the, where God makes the big point. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want you uh, to tell me how much you're going to do for me. I don't want you to put on the, the nice smile. I don't, want, I don't care about your church attendance, right? I want you to obey. I want your heart. That's the big lesson there. So Samuel realizes, and, and God tells Samuel, there's going to be another one. There's going to be another king to whom I will show you. He goes and he appoints David. David at this point is, is come to be known as just a little pipsqueak shepherd boy. Um, but he's anointed to be the next king of Israel. Then, then he defeats Goliath against the Philistines. From there, he rises to uh, a seat of prominence within the Israeli, uh, Israeli army. <clears throat> and people start cheering his name. Well, like I said, Saul is incredibly insecure. So Saul starts to hate David and actually tries to kill David because he's so insecure. Um, the rest of, of the book of 1 Samuel is the story of David running from Saul, uh, trying to escape him. He's in the wilderness. This is where he kind of gathers up his, his mighty men, and Saul's chasing him all the while trying to hold together Israel. By 2 Samuel, by the, uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel, Saul dies. David marches back into Hebron and takes kingship over all of Israel. David is an incredibly successful king. Everybody loves him. By 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is saying, I want to build you a temple, God. God says, no, you're not going to build me a temple because you're a man of war and there's blood on your hands. However, he gives him the Davidic covenant. He says, I'm going to promise you a house, kingdom, and a throne, right? You're going to have a lineage, just like Abraham, right? You're going to have a house that are always going to, that lineage is always going to have a place to rule and a throne. They will always have the right to rule from your throne. So David goes on, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 22 maybe, 2 Samuel. No, excuse me, 12 maybe, where he sins with Bathsheba. Um, uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her, her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Things spiral downhill from there for David. Um, David, for, for such a, a mighty king that David is, for such a tremendous leader of men that David is, he's a, just a horrible family man. I'm sure there's a lesson in there somewhere. Um, and actually, after this happens, he has at least three sons die, one of which actually tries to perform a coup, tries to kick him out of his, his seat of power. David has to flee. He ends up uh, taking back power. But in the process, like I said, at least three of his sons uh, die, one of which was the product of his uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He ends up having another son with Bathsheba by the name of Solomon. So by the beginning of First Kings, David is, is on his way out. He's about to die. Solomon takes the kingship, just like Blake said. Solomon asked God for wisdom. 
God grants him tremendous wisdom. He becomes the, the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon is also able to build God the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, kings and queens come from, from all around just to see what Solomon has built. But Solomon didn't finish strong. Solomon did the three things that God said, don't let a, a king do. If you ever have a king, just like Blake said, acquire wealth, women, and, and horses. Solomon did those things. He married 700 uh, women, many of whom were from those foreign nations that Israel never kicked out. And because of that, they influenced upon him their foreign gods and their false idols. And he, he ended up, before he was dead, he was worshiping those false idols with his 700 wives. So he didn't finish strong at all. When he dies, his son, Rehoboam, takes the southern kingdom, known as Judah, reigning from Jerusalem. A guy who was in his cabinet formerly, Jeroboam, takes the northern kingdom, uh, known as Israel, reigning from Assyria, or excuse me, reigning from Samaria. All right, now the narrative goes back and forth, the kings back and forth, uh, north and south. Throughout the rest of 1 Kings, this is where you have the prophet Elijah, as uh, Blake was talking about. Uh, by the end of, uh, excuse me, at the beginning of 2 Kings now, Elijah is about to be taken up in a whirlwind. He's actually, he actually never dies. He's taken up in a whirlwind. That is where Elisha, his uh, understudy, takes the, the reins as the, the leading prophet of the day to Israel. The narrative goes back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdom. Just like Blake said, all the kings of the north are wicked. Only eight out of 20 of the southern kings, uh, kings are good. Follow the Lord. Assyria comes down. This is all second kings. Assyria comes down and wipes out Israel, takes them into captivity. About 100 years later, 120 years later, Babylon is now in control. They take over Syria, and then they come down, and they sack um, uh, Jerusalem. And Judah. During this time, this is where the pre-exilic prophets, all these kings, this is where the pre-exilic prophets fit in. This is where Isaiah and Jeremiah fit in. And they are telling these kings, they are telling the nation of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, you have got to repent. You have got to turn back to the Lord or bad things are coming. They didn't listen, right? So bad things came. They, they are sent into exile. Um, Seventy years they've been in exile. This is uh, when we get the exilic prophets, like Blake was saying, Daniel and Ezekiel, after 70 years, just like God predicted, uh, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, wipes out the Babylonians, and he says, Israelites, I'm going to allow you to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to allow you to go back and rebuild your city. Not only that, but I'm going to foot the bill. So Zerubbabel leaves the first wave. This is now in uh, the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel leaves excuse me, leads the first wave back to rebuild the temple. Ezra leads the second wave back to restore law, to teach the law, just like Blake said, uh, Ezra 7.10. Uh, Ezra uh, set his heart to learn, to do, and to teach the word of the Lord. It's a fine blueprint for, making and, and, uh, for being and making disciples. So that's the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah, Nehemiah leads the third wave back into Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Um, this is where, so this is the post-exilic time. This is where the, the post-exilic prophets fit in. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, and then after Malachi, we have 400 years of silence. 400 years where we don't have any uh, uh, inspired scripture, right? And then Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and that was the, 
That was the son. That was the serpent crusher who was promised thousands of years beforehand in Genesis chapter 3. And that was the redemption. That was the provision, the ultimate ark of Noah. That was the, the promise to be fulfilled through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. That was the ultimate. That was the prophet like Moses. Jesus was the ultimate warrior king who will uh, return and sit on the throne of David for forever. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 predicted. He's the one that will write the new covenant, the law on our hearts in the new covenant, just like Jeremiah predicted. He's our, he's our Savior. And the story of the Old Testament is a story how, of how God brought about his redemption and fulfilled his promise of redemption. That's the Old Testament.